You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. The following is a recording of the Ayn Rand Institute's Philosophy for Living on Earth webinar series. Sign up to attend the next webinar live at bit.ly forward slash ARI webinars. Is Artistic Preference Subjective? By Harry Binswanger. Hello, this is Harry Binswanger doing this webinar this week. And our subject is art. Is art subjective? Are the preferences of art subjective? And uh, Ben Baer will be helping not only with moderating and fielding the questions, but moving the slides forward and back. So the idea that art is subjective should raise red flags for you because nothing valid is subjective. If subjective means that as, as we use it, arbitrary, disconnected from reality, the province of emotions, not of reason, something distorted. For example, uh, a person, if, if a person has uh, beliefs that he formed merely because somebody told him that it was true, and it wasn't an eyewitness report, but he believes that uh, what that the, the moon is uh, eight hundred thousand miles from the Earth because somebody told him that, or he believes that there are multiple genders because he read it in the newspaper. That would be a subjective conclusion. Whether or not the people putting forward those views have a reason for them, it would be subjective for him to accept anything except an eyewitness report, any abstract conclusion based upon the fact that someone else says it. It's called the fallacy of adveracundium. It's illogical. The content of his belief would be subjective, wouldn't relate to reality. Now, a very different thing is individual variability. Something can be different for you and different for me without being subjective. It can be personal, uh, perfectly objective. And in objectivism, we call that the optional or the personal. For instance, I have the career of being a philosopher. You have different careers. If, as long as they're productive careers, they're all valid. It's not that any of them are uh, wrong, but it's also true that they're not subjective. I'm a philosopher for various reasons, having to do with my whole history and the way my mind works and what I'm interested in. And yours presumably does as well for you. So things can vary from person to person on the basis of differing circumstances and different identity to those uh, people. That's the personal or the optional. It's different from the subjective, which is the wild, the arbitrary, the I just feel it, I don't know. So why do we 
first of all, say that that's the right way to define it. Of course, people who favor the subjective will say, there is no right and wrong definitions, they're subjective. The whole history of philosophy is about the uh, war between the subjective and the what Ayn Rand calls the intrinsic, the revealed, the one truth coming from God, which is a mystical idea. But definitions are not subjective because they have a function to perform. Even though definitions can vary somewhat, there are options. There is a right way and a wrong way. And in this case, subjective has to be defined to contrast it to what is the right way with individual variability. Because your concepts have to reflect the fundamental differences in reality. There's a fundamental difference between something that's distorted, crazy, arbitrary, wild, and something that is rational, but varies according to the context and circumstances of the individual. So it would be wrong to define it in a way that didn't make that distinction. Is art then subjective? Is, are the preferences and the standards for judging art wild, crazy, emotion-based, no accounting for them, arbitrary? No, they're not. But in order to see why not, and to see in what way art is objective but personal, you have to know what art is and what function it has in human life. Ayn Rand and Aristotle are the only ones who had a clue in the history of uh, aesthetic theory as to what art is and how it works. I'm going to talk about Ayn Rand's uh, position, but Aristotle's is a uh, similar um, position, not as well developed, not based upon a whole system that objectivism has. So uh, Ayn Rand defines art as a selective recreation of reality, a selective recreation of reality, according to an artist's metaphysical value judgment. Selective recreation of reality is wider than art. For instance, a fashion drawing is a selective recreation of reality. If I tell you what my wife told me and I recreate that conversation and leave out irrelevant things, that's a selective recreation of reality. But art is a selective recreation of reality for a certain purpose. It's according to an artist's metaphysical value judgments. What does that mean? What are metaphysical value judgments? Your deepest premises about what life is and has to offer. Everybody has reached conclusions based upon his experience since childhood about what life is and what it has to offer whether he can be happy or not, whether he can be successful in action or is doomed to failure, whether it's uh, reality outside of ourselves is fully real and we can know it, or whether it's semi-unreal 
And there's a higher reality that we should be tuned into, not the reality that we perceive through our senses. And whether or not you are in control of your actions and thinking, which is the issue of free will versus determinism, the denial of free will. So these are the major questions to which everyone forms an answer. And she calls them metaphysical value judgments that because they are metaphysical conclusions, that is conclusions about man and reality on the deepest level, that condition and set the terms for your value judgments. It's the metaphysics behind your value judgments. Now, what does that mean in practice to say that art presents metaphysical value judgments through selective recreation of reality? But could we have the first slide then? Here's an Egyptian statue picked more or less at random, but to be representative of Egyptian sculpture. This one has a figure that's seated, that's sort of blending into that on which he's seated. His hands are on his knees. His body is perfectly symmetrical. His uh, headdress is a formal um, version that they always show in these sculptures and in the cap that follows it. His face is blank. Very little musculature, musculature is shown. You can't imagine this person being alive, living, and acting. And in fact, the metaphysical value judgments of, uh, that were dominant in ancient Egypt were a concern with death, with the afterlife. They were not doers and movers in this reality the, the thing they're best known for doing and moving is the pyramids, which are set up as gigantic tombs by slave labor for the pharaohs. So the, the whole focus of life in ancient Egypt was on waiting for death, preparing for death. In contrast, if we can have the next slide, this is Hermes, a Greek semi-god, demigod, uh, in a sculpture that's, I believe, at the Fogg Art Museum at Harvard. Now, not only is this much more accurate about what the human anatomy is and shows the musculature, but this is a man who can move. You can definitely imagine him moving, doing things, and succeeding. It looks like a confident, uh, reposed, powerful, mobile, potentially individual. And he's nude. So the Greeks valued the human body and did not have the Christian hangups about nudity and sex. So their basic metaphysical value judgments that were dominant in the culture were that man is a heroic being, man is an active being, life is to be lived, man is 
pretty much in control of himself. There were, they did believe that there was a uh, cosmic uh, fate or justice that man's choices had to be balanced against, but that was in the background and rarely came into play. So you, you see, now flip back then to the preceding slides, that and that, they're just two opposite universes. It's not the case, you might think it's the case that the Egyptians couldn't do any better. That's not true. Some of them are a little better and they kept in this same format for thousands of years, thousands of years. Now, if we go back to the Greek slide, Greece perfected the, this sculpture level within 200 years of their beginning approximately, right? So it's not the case that this is some breakthrough that the Egyptians couldn't have made. They weren't interested in it. They didn't want, they would not have liked this sculpture, the Egyptians. They would have considered it profane just as the Christians did after the fall of the Roman Empire. So I think that dramatizes very clearly the difference between one set of metaphysical value judgments and another through the medium of sculpture. Some people like one, some people like the other. As I said, the Egyptians would not have liked this. Christians don't like this. I mean, deep medieval type Christians. And what did they like instead? Let's go to the next slide. That's Eve reaching out behind her unknowingly to pick the apple of the forbidden fruit. So you notice she's flat, she's unreal, she cannot, she could not get up and walk around. This is a bob relief, but it doesn't matter because there are some bob reliefs that show people in the equivalent to the Hermes that I just showed a very capable of action, in fact, caught in action. She's reaching behind her, not even looking at what she's doing. It's like she's doing it through evasion. So the message here is we're trapped. We're all caught by Eve's sin and Adam's eating of the, of the apple. And she is shown semi-nude, but discreetly covered up in other parts with uh, foliage. But she, they were not, as you know, Christian art is not in favor of nudity. Generally, uh, the, and certainly in painting, the people are shown clothed to the extreme. So this is an, yet another uh, but similar to the Egyptian, a set of value premises, metaphysical value judgments. Different views, not of what the good is, but of what life is all about, what's important, Ayn Rand says. The metaphysical value judgments are based on a view of what's important in life. So, that 
indicates what an answer to the first question are value judgments uh, sorry artistic preferences subjective no they are not you you like what you like for a reason the medievals liked what they liked for a reason the egyptians liked what they liked and the greeks liked what they liked for a reason but that reason was their deepest inner value premises, meaning the views of metaphysics that underlay all their particular value choices. So you see what I mean that it's not that one, that there's one thing that everyone ought to prefer and everyone who prefers the wrong thing is uh, making a mistake. It's not a revealed truth about what should be liked. There's no such thing. There's the art that speaks to your basic metaphysics. The issue of is that metaphysics right or wrong is a separate question. It's a question for metaphysics, for philosophy. Art takes a given artist's metaphysics and attempts to make that as blindingly real as possible. If it does it well, as we'll see, that is good art, qua art. But the first cut that we're talking about is if you like what's presented, it's because you resonate with the artist's view of the universe. So in short, art presents a philosophy of life. It presents the essential basic premises of a philosophy of life. And if you hold the same philosophy as the artist, and if he communicates it well, uh, uh, dramatizes it well, objectifies it through his art, it will resonate with you and you will like it. If not, not. So it's not causeless, crazy, wild, arbitrary. It's caused. It's caused by philosophical resonance or dissonance with the artist's philosophy of life. Now, I hasten to add, it's not a matter of what you say your philosophy is. It's a matter of the implicit philosophy ingrained in your brain through your whole past experience. So you could gradually retrain your metaphysical value judgments. Through, it can't be done quickly because they, there's so many connections to root around and form new connections. But it, it can be done, and people's metaphysics do change over the decades. So it's not engraved in stone. But at any given time, the metaphysics that you have is the metaphysics that you have and what you work with. Okay, uh, we're running short on time. Let's go to the next one, which is a still life. The, again, to illustrate in this time, not in sculpture, but in painting, uh, two different senses, uh, well, I haven't introduced that term, two different sets of metaphysical value judgments. 
So this is a painting from, I believe, the late 1600s by an artist named Kalb. And it's typical of the kind of still lives that present a profusion of objects disordered and against a dark background that suggests reality is not fully disclosed in any time. There's certain things in the foreground that you can focus on and you can make those very clear, but hovering in the background, there's mystery. Now let's con contrast that with the next slide, a painting by Ayn Rand's husband, Frank O'Connor. Also a still life, but look at the different universe. This is a open, clean, essentialized universe, a bright and happy and self-assertive universe. There's a little playfulness to it. See the lemon hanging by a rope? It's not completely finished, by the way. The right-hand part, particularly the wine glass, the, it's, it's a glass with wine and it's not completely finished. But it's enough to show you the dramatic contrast between a, a, a universe that is open to uh, joyous, free action, and if we go back to the Kalb, a universe that's got some mystery in it and has more data than we can easily handle. And it's not that this is a bad painting of its, uh, for its premises. I'm presenting it as I think the artist would agree that he, what he was trying to say. So the two different philosophies of life result in uh, different uh, paintings. So there's only one more point that I need to make to fill the uh, required uh, prospectus for this course. I said I would talk about the objectivity of uh, aesthetic judgment. Is it good art? Forget whether the value, uh, metaphysical value judgments are yours or someone else's. Does the artist present them well? And the main criterion for this is integration, which includes clarity. That is, it must clearly concretize and objectify through every element its uh, metaphysics, its view of life. You can judge that by experimenting with changing things. Like, suppose we took this painting and made the background completely sunlit that would be a different metaphysics. That would not be what this artist is trying to convey. Contrasting, if we go to Frank O'Connor in the next slide, if you took this and put into it, oh, uh, a bunch of uh, ground beef in a dish in the front, that would contradict the theme because ground beef 
is a little earthier and more um, primitive, more um, on the food axis than say a glass of wine. A glass of wine is associated not just with nourishment and cooking and smells, but with elegance, with refinement, with civilization. Or if you put a goat on that table, I think you can see it would completely change the metaphysics and it would not be a serious uh, painting anymore. So that's the number one test, the integration that everything that's included in the artwork adds to the objectification of the artist's theme, which is a presentation of his metaphysics. Okay, uh, let's take questions now, and you can ask about the other part that, that I advertise, Atlas Shrugged versus Ulysses, but let's see what's out there. Ben is coming on. We should also remember to uh, remind people about next week's uh, webinar before we go into Q&A. Uh, this is going to be uh, hosted by Dr. Greg Salmiari. He's going to be uh, speaking, presenting on the topic, do people's interests have to conflict? And you can, um, if you're already signed up uh, to receive notifications about uh, this webinar, you should be getting another notification next week. Um, otherwise, if you're only tuning into us for the first time, you can go to courses.einran.org slash webinars uh, to find out more and register. Um, also, this is, uh, uh, if you have topics that you'd like to see us pursue at future webinars, you should send us an email at webinars at einrand.org. We're always interested to know what kind of big questions you, the audience, would like to see answered. And finally, I just, I also wanted to share with the audience, uh, if you're watching us on Zoom, uh, I'm going to let you access a polling module. This gives us an idea of who you are and where you're coming from. We're uh, trying to reach new people who haven't been introduced to Ayn Rand's ideas previously. And uh, by sharing, us, uh, sharing with us your, information, uh, your, your background, uh, what your level of familiarity with Ayn Rand is, uh, you can help us see if we are reaching our target audience. So I'll, I'll leave that poll open on Zoom uh, for a while. Um, so it's just one question, right? So yes, they don't just have one to question. go through an elaborate process. It's just this one question. Right, just one question about uh, how, much, how much familiarity they have with Ayn Rand. So I'm going to stop sharing the slides right now, but if, if you want me to bring them up again, Harry, uh, if you want to talk about any one of those, let me mm -hmm. know. Um, and then otherwise, we're going to transition to the Q&A. And I uh, haven't had a chance to look at what's come in yet because I was sharing slides. But uh, just to let people know uh, what, uh, if you're on Zoom, if you're watching us on Zoom, there's a button at the bottom of your screen, if you hover over your screen, uh, for Q&A. And if you have a question you'd like Harry to, add, to answer, please uh, plug your question into that Q&A module. Otherwise, if you're watching on Facebook, uh, you can you can uh, plug a question into the comment section there uh, on Facebook, and we will try uh, to take a look at it. Um, 
before Harry, before I uh, relay any of these questions from the audience, I thought I would ask a, a question of my own to get things started um, about what you presented. Um, so you were you were emphasizing uh, the way in which art, you 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 suggested artistic preference is objective, not subjective, because it is fundamentally caused by a person's uh, you know, philosophical view of life, their worldview, yeah. their metaphysical value judgments. And I, I was a little curious about that way of putting it because normally when we talk about things being objective, there's usually a contrast with the possibility of being subjective. So for evaluating some kind of product like journalism it's you, you can have objective journalism you can have subjective journalism you can have yeah i can give you an thinking. example I so is there also example. subjective what would yeah. subjective preferences be yeah in someone someone says oh i love Mahler," and that you know the musician and he says that because all the people he wants to be in with love Mahler. he himself has no actual reaction to Mahler, but he pretends to. And it can go beyond that. Uh, someone can actually sort of like something because his authority figures tell him that every uh, enlightened person does. So uh, that would be an example of a subjective preference, not an objective preference. But it's your view that uh, if the if the preference really does come from the person's deepest philosophical worldview, then their preference is as objective as it can be, regardless of the worldview. Because it sounded like you were saying that was true even of the of the Christian art, even of the oh, Egyptian yeah, art. Oh yeah, sure. Oh, absolutely. Okay. You know, I'm not on reflection. I'm not sure that objective is exactly the right contrast to make here because uh, it's, uh, the preference is based on an emotion. And emotions, although caused, are not objective, they're, they're just the given. And uh, artistic preferences, I guess the objectivity comes in the way I said, are they based upon really looking and first-handedly letting yourself respond? Or are they based upon uh, something extraneous to the artwork or an inadequate acquaintance with it? And, um, and I don't mean you have to study it for years, but you just glanced at it and I don't like that. So uh, I, I think you can, when it comes to a statement, this is what I like, this is art that speaks to me, you can get into the issue of objective. That's a judgment. That's not just a feeling. And would you say that, and there are some questions that are coming in, uh, uh, in particular about, not about so much someone's ex consumption of art, but also about the production of art. Is, mm -hmm. is, there a, is there a similar point that you would make about the artist's uh, judgments in creating a particular work of art that it's, that they're also objective or subjective according to how well, how much they're coming from an integrated worldview of some kind? Well, that's interesting. Um, it's kind of art or hack. Peter Keating in The Fountainhead produces architecture 
uh, I wouldn't say his creation is subjective. Maybe in a grand philosophical scale it is, but it's just inauthentic. It's, you know, it's just hack work. It's, and there are people who, you know, write novels for the money that they're going to make, and they don't write from their soul. That's the equivalent of subjective creation. But the fundamental point that you're getting at, which I agree with, is that per se an emotion is not in the category of subjective or objective. It's when you come to make judgments, conceptual judgments in words that you get into the realm of the subjective or the objective. Uh, and I'm also like getting... to take, I saw some interesting questions here. Uh, and we're getting a lot of questions about whether certain kinds of uh, things count as art and whether certain artworks are good or bad kinds of artworks. Uh, and that's a little different um, kind of question than uh, the one that you were addressing. So I don't know, do you want to move to those? Maybe as a transition, you could say a little there bit was... more about the difference between uh, evaluating uh, the uh, the, the integration of a person's worldview as opposed to aesthetic evaluation? Because a lot of these questions are asking about aesthetic evaluation, which you, you said a little bit about at the end, um, but maybe you could say more before we get into uh, some of those well, questions. Uh, let me first deal with uh, the questions. Um, uh, for instance, are photorealistic paintings a given uh, a type of art and is X art and is Y art. The, this comes down to the perceptual level. The question is when you look at a photorealist painting or a photograph or a non-objective piece of, uh, of smears, does it give you something that you otherwise find, in, well, let's say everybody gets it in music, to, at least to some extent. In music, you don't have to do anything. It just directly connects to your uh, metaphysics or it doesn't. And uh, if you compare your response to the range of art forms that you have a response to, novels, for instance, to this one thing you're questioning, just ask yourself, does it give me as deep and meaningful an experience? And if you think it does, and Ayn Rand thinks it doesn't, then you need to uh, make sure who, who is right. But in, in a certain way, it doesn't matter. It's not that, for instance, Ayn Rand didn't think photography was art. And you can do so much with Photoshop now that it blends into uh, art. But suppose somebody holds it, well, photography is art, at it, photography at its best is art. And Ayn Rand says, no, it isn't. There's not a lot that follows from that if you really have photographs that thrill you the way that you're thrilled by other things. So it's a question of, can you find that function performed? Now, that's what I always say about non-objective painting like Jackson Pollock. 
yeah, it can be kind of interesting. It can be kind of pretty. Jackson Pollock isn't, but, you know, Mondrians can be orderly and, and pretty. But they just don't speak to your deep soul. At least that's my introspection and that of a lot of other people too. So it's, a, it's an empirical question in a way. How would we know, for instance, that music is an art form other than noticing that we have tremendous responses in music that are like the responses we have to the other things we call art forms? Okay, so that's a, for that whole category of question. Um, what was the one you raised um, again, Ben? Well, I think you, I think you uh, said a fair bit of the first thing I raised, um, but I was also asking uh, if you could say more about the difference between the kind of evaluation you've just, you've spent most of the presentation mm -hmm. on, which was uh, objective versus subjective preference. And what's the difference between that and evaluating the artwork as an yeah. artwork aesthetically? You touched on it yeah, a bit I, at the I end. Did, but... I did touch on it. And uh, the question is how, how powerfully, again, it's an empirical question, how powerfully does it present its view of life? Now, you take a drawing by a, an eight-year-old, you know, with crayons, five-year-old, it will present a view of life, but not very powerfully, not in a way that either for the kid himself or for certainly for an adult onlooker resonates with his deepest metaphysics because it won't, he won't have the ability to make all those integrations. Um, I'm, I'm trying to to pick a, a an example. Say in literature, um, well, then that takes us to what I wanted to get to, which is James Joyce that I slammed in the description. James Joyce is the favorite of the literary critics, and they rate style high on their pantheon of uh, attributes to evaluate. Here's an excerpt from James Joyce. Ulysses, from the book that they rated number one. He kissed the plump, mellow, yellow, smellow melons of her rump, one on each plump, melonous hemisphere in their mellow, yellow furrow with obscure, prolonged, provocative, melon-smellonous osculation. The visible signs of post-satisfaction, a silent contemplation, a tentative velation, a gradual abasement, a solicitous aversion, approximate erection. Now, that is subjective in the extreme. You cannot even follow it. They're made up words, the grammar is missing. And uh, just to cleanse your brain from that, here's one of my favorite passages from Atlas Shrugged, and we're considering it only in relation to style here. She sat listening to the music. It was a symphony of triumph. The notes flowed up. They spoke of rising, and they were the rising itself. 
They were the essence in the form of upward motion. They seemed to embody every human act and thought that had ascent as its motive. It was a sunburst of sound breaking out of hiding and spreading open. It had the freedom of release and the tension of purpose. It swept space clean and left nothing but the joy of an unobstructed effort. Only a faint echo within the sound spoke of that from which the music had escaped, but spoke in laughing astonishment at the discovery that there was no ugliness or pain and there never had had to be. It was the song of an immense deliverance. Atlas Shrugged, speaking about the music of one of the characters, she invented Richard Halley, a composer. Now, one is good and one is bad. Okay? And the fact that James Joyce uses alliteration does not save it from unintelligibility, which means it cannot, it cannot produce an emotion of, of you. Uh, a um, prolonged provocative, mellow, that's not alliteration, the next one. Uh, smellow melons, since smellow isn't a word, you hear it as mellow melons. It, it, the the wordplay and rhyme adds a certain sensory interest, but not much, and not one that will reach to metaphysics. Intelligibility is the precondition of presenting a world that is according to your metaphysical value judgments. So if something is unintelligible, it is per se bad as art. Not that it's, I mean, you could have somebody trying to write a quote objectivist novel, and we've seen these where it's bad, it's badly done, it doesn't work, it doesn't convey, it reads like rationalistic dogma, not like something coming from the soul of the author. So that's aesthetic judgment. How powerfully does the artist convey his theme, right or wrong? Since you, uh, since the James Joyce uh, passage uh, said something about uh, mellow yellow, I thought maybe we should ask you a question because uh, a number of people here are asking questions about the recent story about the banana duct taped to the wall. I don't know if you saw this. No, I didn't. It, it made headlines because that was basic. That was the artwork. Somebody took a banana and they duct taped it to a wall in a in a gallery, and then somebody actually pulled it off and ate it who wasn't supposed to. But uh, the, what they're asking is, uh, is that art? No. And to complicate the question a little bit, I'll, I'll plug in another question that uh, Jennifer was asking. Um, uh, often people will say that the, artist, the artist's intent is important for uh, e evaluating the quality no. of the artwork. So, so no. what if the artist says, well, I'm trying to express something about the nature of uh, uh, the commercialization of, uh, uh, of our life with- Okay, with, go with ahead and express banana. it. Go ahead and express it. So far you haven't done it. So the intention is irrelevant. The intention is here's what I was trying to do. 
The question is, yeah, but what did you do? So uh, intentions are irrelevant. And uh, I see that Jennifer also asks about where to draw the line in effect between um, art and non-objective art. When does art become non-objective? And the objectivist answer to that is, if we're talking about painting now, and she was, when there are no longer recognizable entities, it is not painting. It is not art. It may be design. It's not like the world is divided into two things, art and everything that is bad. There are good uh, abstract designs. And uh, if you think of, there are great ones, if you think of the work of Frank Lloyd Wright, a lot of the stuff that they talk about in painting, non-objective painting, you know, the lines, the movement, the colors, the balance of form and so forth, where it's presenting nothing, Frank Lloyd Wright has that and really knows how to do it. And it adds immeasurably, it's essential to his architecture because architecture does not present a scene as to what it does do, uh, I don't want to take that up right yet, as long as there are other questions, because that's a big separate topic. Well, maybe uh, a good uh, issue to transition to would be uh, kind of take away uh, cash value for, for those of us who are consumers of art. And I see that Robertus has an interesting question in this regard. He, uh, he says, how, how do you interpret your value judgments according to your art preferences, if you have not much experience in contemplating art, what would be essential questions to ask yourself to make sense of the emotions you feel and mm. translate them into conscious conclusions while introspecting? Okay, so the context here for those who are just hearing Ayn Rand's views for the first time, the context is that you can use artistic responses to learn things about yourself. Since they reflect your deepest core premises, the conclusions you've drawn about life. And since these are not easily accessible to you because they're so wide ranging and deeply, I don't want to say buried, but entrenched, you can learn something about yourself by what you like in art, just as you can by what you like in people. But now how do you do it? How do you, um, do it correctly in looking at an artwork. I like the Frank O'Connor painting. I like the Hermes sculpture, but a lot less than the Frank O'Connor painting. So what can you do to make those, um, to, to grasp what you're responding to? That's not an easy question. And I, let's see if I can give something as a, a general guideline. Yeah, it has to be through differentiation. Differentiation is the primary purpose, uh, um, function of awareness. Uh, so you have to take two things that differ in one respect only if you can find them. Certainly in a small number of respects and see which one you like more and name the difference. 
So for example, in the two still lifes, they're both clear. In fact, the Kalb is more skillfully painted than the Frank O'Connor. The forms are rendered more accurately. The lighting is more correct. So that is uh, not an issue of clarity that I'm responding to, but the thing that hits me over the head is clutter. Clutter versus open space. So I know from that that I like open space. I like the freedom of motion. I'm, I'm attracted to uh, a world. I've concluded that the world requires that there be freedom of motion. In the most basic sense, I'm not going to run into a wall, uh, not political freedom, but the ability to act. And it, if it's me, it suggests I can act. Another thing, the first time I saw that Frank O'Connor painting was in Ayn Rand's apartment in 1969. And it was hanging on the wall and I did a kind of double take at it. And she said, what, what's that or something? And I said, wow, it's so three dimensional. And she said, Thank you, that was the assignment. It's interesting that she accepted thanks for her husband's work. That's how close she identified with him. But it was an assignment by another painter that she loved, Jose Manuel Capaletti, whose work she loved. She wasn't in love with Jose Capaletti. Uh, to, because Frank was a student at that time. And apparently to make it three-dimensional was one of the assignments. And it uh, is extremely so when you see it in reality, particularly before it began to fade somewhat. So I immediately um, saw one thing. And I said, it's three-dimensional. Now, what does that mean about uh, my metaphysical value judgments? What don't I like about flat? Well, it's the same thing. You can't move in a world that's flat. So I want to be able to feel free to move. Um, that is a, a big value, metaphysical value judgment to, for me. To, to, to act, you have to be able to not be obstructed, not to be stopped whether by people or by natural obstacles. So I value getting to the goal. That's the widest thing, that it, it's important to be able to get to your goals. Since metaphysical value judgments are phrased in terms of what's important, it's important to not be obstructed and be able to reach your goals. Um, how do you do it? You try to break it into each element that you can. If it's painting, it's color, it's form, it's composition, it's style of rendering, and it's subject matter. Subject matter is the least important, well, I'm not sure that's true. People overrate subject matter. If a painting is a painting of money, however much you may value money after reading Atlas Shrugged, uh, that is probably not going to be a good painting. I mean, I think it would be really hard. It would have to, 
it would have to bring in things other than piles of, of, of bills and coins in order to get beyond the fact that that's its subject matter. I know a person who thought that the most beautiful painting that there could be would be a pastry. Now that is not an artistic approach. Uh, that, that shows he was not in touch with this metaphysical value judgments because pastry, yummy as it is, is not a metaphysical value, nor is food. It's about your relationship to reality, like the one I gave. It's important to be able to freely reach your goal. Now, I see an interesting question, Ben, from, uh, unless you have something that you want me to take from Reed McGrew, uh, about what if an artist has mixed premises? Sure. There's two kinds of mixed premises. One is a dramatic conflict clash of strongly held premises. So you, you hold that it's important to succeed in life and you hold that the real thing that counts is the afterlife. You've got a direct contradiction, but you, in some frames of mind, you're very devout and you're, you're concerned with God and the afterlife and reuniting with God in heaven. And in the other, you're very concerned with achieving your goals in this world, and that's important to you. That can make very interesting art, and a lot of the art of the Renaissance is precisely of that. Michelangelo shows that conflict in his uh, sculpture and in his painting in, in the um, Last Judgment on this, the horizontal Sistine uh, Chapel wall, not the ceiling, which is less conflicted. So a conflict of premises, each strongly hold, held, can make for great, very interesting art. Uh, the other kind of mixed premises is, well, I kind of half believe A and half believe not A. And I, I'm not sure in some moods if you're one, some the other. So it's kind of muddied uh, more than a conflict. It's uh, hesitation, indecision, not taking a stand, that will not produce interesting art. There's no way that he can give voice to one of the three possibilities. The A, he can't give a strong view of the A because he doesn't strongly hold it. The not A for the same reason. Or the contradiction between A and not A because he's not really sure there is a contradiction, he just hasn't taken a stand. So those are two different situations and a lot of great, in fact, almost all great art in history is of the conflict kind because there hasn't been a fully consistent philosophy until Ayn Rand. So it's, the conflict is almost inevitable, almost. I see one last question I think is on a related issue, except that it's from the perspective, again, of the art consumer rather than the producer. There was an anonymous person who asked, can a rational person enjoy works of art with bad metaphysics only on the basis of the artist's skill? So maybe this is an issue of conflict too, though there might be another aspect to this question as well. Well, not only that, a person who's rational and moral 
can have some malevolent premises that he formed in childhood and doesn't, you know, really realize as, or maybe he does, uh, and uh, really respond to a malevolent worldview, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, if you like horror movies, then by all means, go enjoy them. Art is not the uh, place to form self-judgments or self-criticism. It's a place to confirm and bring to the forefront of your consciousness your deepest conclusions about life. If you revise those conclusions, you think they're not really right, you know, then that's a separate issue of reworking your conclusions and making the new ones habitual. But whatever they are at any given moment, you should go with that in art. But it, it, the question might have meant, suppose you've got the kind of uh, premises that respond to, oh, I don't know, uh, Da Vinci. You know, the drawing of da Vinci, drawings of Da Vinci and the paintings of Da Vinci. Uh, and um, that they're, they're pretty rational. You know, they're pretty, it's, not, it's not your finding fault with them. But then you look at Rembrandt, a different universe. Rembrandt's a different universe. But generally, it's very well done. Can you get pleasure from the well doneness Yes, absolutely. It can't reach your deepest soul, but you can definitely be taken aback in admiration for the skillful presentation of a view that's not yours. I think there are limits to that. For instance, well, I guess I would have to have this, the slide, but Edvard Munch, M-U-N-C-H, uh, The Scream, presents horror, alienation, metaphysical anxiety in a nightmare world. Uh, I can't say it's well done, but a lot of people really respond to that painting. And so it has to be well done to a certain degree, but my first reaction was, God, this is childish. So it's, there are kind of limits when it gets so far out of your universe that you, you know, it's very difficult to even say what integration would mean there. That painting, I think, is interesting because uh, Monk, from what I know about it, must have been very deliberate about it because he, he, he has other works that are very realistic and in kind of the academic painting tradition. And so he could turn it on and off, whatever he was, whatever he was turning on and off. And um, it seems like this is a case where he had a, this was a, a way of expressing that very different worldview, um, which you know, must have meant something to him. Something thought he was depressing. Yeah. Academic painters did generally did not present their senses of life. They presented what they were supposed to present. I wouldn't say it's true of all of them, but the, the academy as a school was turning out hacks. That's, that was his job. Well, we had a lot of other questions come in, but I don't think we'll have time to get started on any uh, more of them. We're, we're at, our, uh, at the end of our hour. 
But thanks very much, Harry, uh, for presenting this for us. And um, again, if, if, if others, uh, if, if people in the audience are interested in hearing uh, more on topics like this, please let us know. Please send suggestions to webinars at aynrand.org. And we, uh, we hope to see uh, many of you next week when Dr. Sol Dr. Salmieri talks about uh, conflicts of interest. And Harry was just holding up uh, the uh, Romantic Manifesto. Maybe you wanted to make a, a pitch to look yeah, at Yeah, this that. is a really exciting read. It's a series of uh, short essays that Ayn Rand wrote on art. Not just the theory of art, but uh, she covers the history of Romantic art in there and uh, the role of art in the development of a child's moral sense. It's, it has brought people to tears reading some of the essays in this because it's so personal. So I definitely recommend this book. And Harry, you have a chapter in the uh, Gotthelf and Salmieri Companion to Ayn Rand about Ayn Rand's aesthetic philosophy. Yes, which, which I would recommend others take a look at if you can if you can get your hands on that companion to Ayn Rand, which is published by Wiley Blackwell. That's another good place to follow up if you want to learn more about these ideas. So um, I think that with that we can we can draw it to a close. Thanks, Harry, and and you just need to hit the uh, the end Leave meeting. meeting. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.